So much for the primaries. Donald Trump all but killing suspense in January with an 11-point win Tuesday in New Hampshire over the sole Republican rival left standing. Never Trumpers can try the it's only 11 points argument in a state that he won by 20 uh, in, during his first run back in 2016. But New Hampshire is an outlier that lets independents vote in a primaries. Exit polls uh, suggest the former president won the votes of three quarters of uh, the party fateful in that primary. We'll ask about the fateful. They don't all approve the January 6th uh, bid to storm the Capitol and overturn elections, but they are ready to overlook that. Why? And why are they so energized? Do the Trumps of this world answer a demand or dictate the agenda? More importantly, is that energy enough to unseat Joe Biden? As 2016 proved, Trump doesn't need a majority of the votes, but to win in the right states. So what is the populist strategy for 2024? Today in the France 24 debate, it's all about the Republican base. Joining us from the U.S. Capitol, political strategist uh, Douglas Hay, former Republican National Committee communications director. Thank you for being with us. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Also in Washington, Joshua Mitchell, chair of the Department of Government at uh, Georgetown University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. From New York City, we welcome back journalist Kyle Spencer, author of Raising Them Right, The Untold Story of America's Ultra-Conservative Youth Movement and Its Plot for Power. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Glad to be here. And former France 24 White House correspondent Kedavon Gorgistani has been watching it throughout. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Francois. The uh, France 24 debate, where you can react on the hashtag F24Debate. Yeah, it was billed as Nikki Haley's best shot as uh, uh, upsetting the script. Both candidates pulling out all the stops with a record turnout for a New Hampshire Republican uh, primary. It's a small state in uh, northeast New England with uh, 300,000 turning out. The former two-term governor of South Carolina now has a month to make her pitch uh, to her home state. She's staying in it, she says. Now you've all heard the chatter among the political class. They're falling all over themselves saying this race is over. Well, I have news for all of them. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. Douglas Hay, she says this race is far from over. Is she accurate in saying so? In, in one sense, yes. In, in one sense, no. If she were to step out, this would be the earliest finished uh, contested primary that the Republican Party has essentially ever had. Um, and so um, she, she's right on that. But what she did, I think, in New Hampshire that's important is not necessarily what, what her vote total was, even though uh, she, she lost by about 12 points, which was uh, overperforming in what we saw in the last polls going into um, yesterday. But what she did was she demonstrated what a core weakness Donald Trump will have that buttresses a good part of her argument, which is that Donald Trump can't win in November, that independent voters, those who really showed up in full force in New Hampshire and are critically important in the um, swing states, places like Arizona, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, and so on, that Donald Trump will so struggle with those voters that ultimately he can win the primary, but he can't win the general. It's a key part of what her message has been over the past few weeks, 
and her result, where she's done better than Pat Buchanan did in 1992, when he sh sent shockwaves, uh, losing to uh, President, uh, then, then President George H.W. Bush uh, by about 13 points, that she did better than that, buttresses that argument. But Donald Trump won, he won the delegates, and he's that much closer uh, to winning the nomination ultimately. And, and he wins those two early contests, Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, uh, back to back. Uh, whenever that happens, usually that means you're a shoo-in uh, to win the nomination. Douglas, say, what's your experience uh, coming out of something like that, especially when you're still trying to raise funds ahead of those Super Tuesday contests in early March? Mm -hmm. That's a that's a real challenge for Haley moving forward. We have four weeks between now and, and South Carolina. She's not expected to win South Carolina, obviously. And she said she's not going anywhere, but that's what candidates always say before they, they get out of a race. Now, she's put $4 million of advertising into South Carolina. She has a rally um, tonight where I think she'll double and triple down on what her messaging has been um, for Donald Trump or against Donald Trump. But the question of funding is going to be critical for, for her and what her fundraisers, what her backers uh, ultimately do over these coming weeks. One thing we know is that candidates don't get out when they've run out of um, reasons to campaign, unless that reason ultimately is money. Kedavon Gorgistani? Absolutely. I mean, Doug is uh, really pointing to uh, the key thing in U.S. politics. It's uh, about the money. Now, it looks like she uh, potentially has the money to uh, stay until uh, South Carolina. The question is really going uh, forward. She's actually uh, going on a sort of uh, fundraising uh, tour. She's going to uh, New York, Florida, California, Texas, has some big donor uh, meetings and fundraising events to try to garner uh, that money that she really uh, needs. Uh, and there is that that ad buy in South Carolina that shows that she's pretty serious when it comes to uh, South Carolina. But of course, uh, depending on what happens in South Carolina, if she makes it uh, that far, uh, if she uh, can sort of narrow the gap with uh, Donald Trump in South Carolina, some donors, some anti-Trump donors might stick with her. If she gets a blowout in South Carolina, then it's going to be increasing that pressure uh, from uh, the donors, from her backers to basically say, we're not going to sign those checks anymore. Uh, you need uh, to get out. And uh, as he said, uh, that's really when it's going to end. But it seems that she's really intent on uh, going to South Carolina and also symbolically, uh, she wouldn't want to drop out before her uh, home state race. Yeah, latest polls have Donald Trump up by 30 points in South Carolina. Although, to hear the former president tell it, 30 sounds a lot like 50. Head out to South Carolina, where I think we're going to win easily. I think we're 50 points up, 5-0. 5-0, 50 points up on a person that was governor. That tells you something. But I felt I should do this because... I find in life you can't let people get away with bullshit, okay? You can't. You just can't do that. Uh, Joshua Mitchell, um, your thoughts on the, the explicative-laden messaging of the uh, former U.S. president? Well, that's quite a piece to follow. Um, uh, so he's full of bravado. He's a, a man from Queens, and I should make clear to to the audience and, and to the panel members that I'm not here to defend Trump. But I find the, uh, the, the Nikki Haley piece to be very, very interesting. I, my sense is that the left takes Nikki Haley very seriously. The never Trumpers take Nikki Haley very seriously. But, but on the whole, I think the Republican 
it's not just the base. I think it's the, the think tank world in Washington where I hang out a lot. I think their sense of this is that, uh, that it really is Trump's election. There's a, there's a grand hope among those uh, who want some alternative to him uh, that Nikki Haley can step in. But I think this is more generated by the press than by people. Nikki Haley is understood by a great many people in the conservative movement to be part of the problem in the following respect. Uh, we had a catastrophic set of wars in the Middle East, and uh, a lot of people voted for Trump, uh, well, for all sorts of reasons, but one of them was they wanted to repudiate the neoconservative movement. And Nikki Haley is part of that, and a lot of Americans are fed up with that. And so that's the reason why they're thinking more seriously about Trump. The, the, the backlash against the neoconservative movement and backlash against foreign interventions uh, from what you're saying then, Joshua Mitchell, uh, the incumbent uh, ha ha also has a problem uh, uh, seeing as uh, Gaza is happening on his watch. No, I think that's a, that's a very real problem. Uh, the, the term that's in use around the Washington area is, is the uniparty, that there are, in fact, Democrats and old-line neoconservatives that are aligning, hence NPR's love affair with, uh, with Lynn Cheney. Uh, but, but I think most Americans are really done with this. There is war fatigue in America. The Ukraine thing has been very, very interesting because it, it, it appeared that there was a consensus among the Republicans about how to treat Ukraine. But it's not clear now. This, uh, the Ukraine war has broken open the Republican consensus or broken it apart. And, and now I think there's a real battle. And it's not clear where Trump is going to stand on this right now. And maybe that's part of the reason why he's quiet on it. Yeah, we, we've heard others... Uh uh, who, who've been much more uh, vocal inside of his camp. He's been more quiet on it. Interesting what you say, though, about how energized uh, uh, Donald Trump supporters are uh, it, it, when you when you go outside uh, uh, of big cities. Eight years on, Trump supporters telling France 24's Fraser Jackson their faith is stronger than ever. Now we get our economy back. When, when Donald Trump was in the White House, we had the best economy we've had in 50 years. The border was closed. No illegals crossing in and ending up who knows where. His economic policies, that's what I voted for. And I don't care if, he's, if people don't like his personality. I say too bad because that's what I love about him. I love his personality. He's real. He's not a... He's not a, a politician. Okay, here we go. It's going to be on first day of his administration. He's going to close those borders up, and he's going to deport everybody, and he's going to drill, baby, drill. The Trump rally is the greatest show on earth. That's a, he, not only is he a wonderful leader, he's enormously entertaining, and he's really funny. He would have been a great stand-up comedian. Donald Trump is our first rock star superhero president. He's the real-life Tony Stark. He's President Iron Man. <laughs> Kyle Spencer, uh, Americans like the, their politics to be a spectacle, to be entertaining. Uh, yeah, they do. I think that what these uh, these voters are, are saying is so interesting, referring to Donald Trump as a superhero. Uh, you know, he really is uh, a cult figure. His supporters are kind of like religious fanatics. Uh, and uh, we know that with, Religious fanatics. 
Yeah, there. I mean, they are the first of all, Donald Trump has a large, large support network in the um, evangelical right wing Christian nationalist movement. But I would say that when I talk about it, people being religious fanatics, I, I'm really saying that they see Trumpism and MAGA culture as a kind of religion, a very empowering, invigorating uh, religion with good and evil. Of course, evil are the progressives, the woke, and the good is the, the MAGA crowd. Um, but, you know, the thing about Trump's um, charisma is that charisma is a tool of uh, fascism. It's a tool of would-be dictators and dictators. Trump has that um, in spades, and he uses it to his advantage. I think, though, that um, the louder and brasher and more um, uh, authoritarian he sounds, uh, the more criminal activity um, he gets uh, convicted of, the least, the, the more um, moderates uh, are going to turn away from him. And I think that that's, of course, what everyone here said we saw in New Hampshire. We saw that New Hampshire was a, as a defeat for Trump. Everybody already knew Trump was going to be the nominee. Everybody already knows he has the space. The question is, how badly do moderates uh, dislike him? And we learned in New Hampshire that, you know, one in five moderates said no way. Moderates are not going to vote for him. He's not going to be reelected in uh, in 24. All right, we'll get back to that prediction in a moment. But uh, Douglas Hay, on, on this idea of what works in politics in uh, 2024, is from what we heard from those people in New Hampshire, is that is it exactly the same recipe as in 2016 or has it changed? Well, it, it certainly changed because Donald Trump is now in practice, not in theory. Um, he, you know, he's been elected um, once. We saw what his um, term was like, whether you like it or you don't like it, you have definite opinions about it. Um, but we also know that, that Donald Trump is able to use language and imagery especially well. And I think that's part of why um, Joe Biden has done so poorly in his approval ratings uh, over the past couple of years, especially with the imagery uh, that we see coming from the border. And uh, when you get outside of Washington, D.C., you, you hear about the issue of the border. Some of the folks uh, in, in New Hampshire mentioned that specifically. When I was home in North Carolina over Christmas, I heard about the border every day. Seeing those images um, really play for Trump, they play for his messaging, and, and ultimately set Trump up for a contest against Joe Biden to where we see that America's not happy that this is the recipe that we have, that these are our two candidates, but either of them could lose to either, and either of them could beat the either. It's part of why Nikki Haley uh, has been trying to make uh, the argument that she she definitely beats Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump doesn't. Um, but either of these two candidates, if they're the nominees, which it looks to be, uh, could could win or could lose. That's what makes this this um, uh, election sort of have so many questions for it, uh, despite the fact that we know what the gener what the primary elections uh, look like they'll turn out to be. We really don't know the lay of the land on the general at this point. And to Kyle Spencer's uh, 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 saying that uh, um, Donald Trump's uh, following is a cult. Well, look, obviously there's a lot of fervor around Donald Trump. You know, one of the things that Nikki Haley has learned, which Ron DeSantis has learned, and, and you know, certainly uh, a lot of others, is that you are not shaking the core of Donald Trump's base. They are there for him. They are going to be there for him in the primaries. They're going to be there for him in the general. That's not enough, typically, to win in a general election. Uh, but this is where questions of Joe Biden's age, Joe Biden's competence, those issues obviously surround Donald Trump as well, and Joe Biden's handling of the economy and other issues like the border 
really come into play. When Joe Biden is the incumbent and 75% of Americans say that we're not on the right track, that's a bad number for Joe Biden. When 30% or 34% approve of the incumbent's handling of the economy, that number certainly could approve. That is still bad numbers um, and a bad step forward or a bad place to be if you're the Biden campaign. Uh, Can I jump in on this? Joshua Mitchell. Please. I think it is a, a big mistake to uh, to run footage like that and then insinuate that, in fact, the whole of Trump's base is like that. There are there are tens of millions of people who will go to the polls in November and and be very thoughtful and be very agonized over two uh, deeply flawed candidates on the matter of the moderates. This is, I think, a terrible mistake. Uh, what COVID did to suburban moms, which is the big demographic Trump lost in 2020 was it showed them that the, what their children are learning in school is not what they want to teach them in the family. Identity politics is run, running rampant through the K through 12 system. COVID showed them, in fact, that, uh, that maybe they don't want to keep pushing the Democratic Party identity politics agenda. Secondly, black men now are polling in the low 30s in support for Trump. Uh, this is a demographic on which the D Democratic Party has needed to count on for a long time. And so I think this is a big problem. Lastly, the evangelicals. The evangelicals were ripped apart in the 2020 campaign. Half of them voted for Trump. Half of them saw him as a morally corrupt figure and, and decided, in fact, um, that they weren't going to vote for him. There is no consensus in the evangelical community whatsoever about whether to vote for Trump uh, in 2024. I follow this very closely. It is simply a mistake to say that the evangelicals are these crazies who are behind Trump. They're very divided on him. And yeah, I stand. I, I want to be. I want to clarify that. I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. Uh, I, I, these are right wing evangelicals. These are Christian nationalists. That is the community. That is not the evangelical community. It is part of the evangelical community. It happens to be a very powerful and vocal, um, uh, strategic part of that community. Uh, but you know, I think this. I just want to also clarify that this uh, the story about the woke schools is a is an old story. I think that the I've watched the progressives, I've watched the Democrats push against that. I've watched uh, activists on the ground push against that. I'm, you're seeing the decline of Moms for Liberty, a disgust at the terrorism that they've inflicted on communities. I think that that is storyline about woke schools is not going to fare well. Uh, the Democrats are pushing back very, very, very hard on the freedoms that the right wing MAGA folk want to take away from Americans. And we're just beginning to see this. Democrats always start these election cycles slow. I'm watching them just getting going. Funding is coming in. Storylines are coming in. Messaging is being formulated. You're going to see in the next couple months a very, 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 very strong message that Trump is extremely dangerous dangerous for moms, for women, for the economy, for democracy, for our place in the world. That messaging hasn't been formed yet, as it and it will, and we are going to see uh, a clarification of how dangerous Trump is. Kevin Gorgestani. I think to double down on this, uh, there is also the aspect of uh, abortion coming into play. And we saw how big of a deal that was in 2022. That big red wave didn't happen in large part because 
of the position of Republicans on abortion. But this is different. This is a presidential election. Yes, but in large part also because it angered and alienated some of those suburban women that some of our guests were talking about. And those suburban women are still thinking about the abortion. And look at what happened in Virginia in 2023. Uh, There was a a governor who who was elected, talked about a lot about the, the school choice and the freedom of the parents in schools and things like that. Also, pushed hard on limiting access to abortion. And he wanted the trifecta, governor, state senate, and uh, house, uh, state house. And he didn't get it. The Republicans mm. beat the, uh, the Democrats, beat the Republicans in large part because they ran on abortion and they ran on schools and they ran targeting the suburbs. And the suburbs, I think, I agree with the other guests that All of these groups, they're not a monolith. You have suburban women who are going to respond and change and go more towards the Republican. But you also have a lot of them who are still going to vote possibly on abortion. You have a lot of young women who are going to vote for abortion. And the Democrats clearly have seen that. We saw Joe Biden, uh, Kamala Harris. And we also see that in states Democrats are pushing hard to get abortion on the ballot, to get Mm -hmm. people to the polls. They might not be enthusiastic for Joe Biden, but if they get them to the polls and they're there and they can vote and the choices between Donald Trump and Joe Biden for some of these voters, it's going to be likely Joe Biden, even if they don't like him. And on Tuesday, yes, as you were mentioning, uh, Joe Biden uh, alongside Kamala Harris on a campaign stop in Virginia. Uh, uh, the incumbent honing in uh, on that issue uh, of abortion. And frankly, Donald Trump and my Republican, including the Speaker of the House, are hell-bent on going even further. To date, MAGA Republican Congress proposed three additional national abortion bans to criminalize health care in every state. So uh, is that the message, Joshua Mitchell, and is that enough? Well, I, I agree with the, the previous two comments uh, that the abortion issue is a huge one. But I think what you have to also recognize is that if you set a bunch of Republican candidates who, who ran, uh, DeSantis and, and among others, next to Trump, Trump turns out to be the one who is not going to push the, uh, the, uh, the, the right to life stuff. He's just not going to do it. He knows that's not unwinnable. Here's the piece that I think you're, you have not talked about. Uh, men in women's sports uh, under the auspice of the transgender movement. I think this is a roiling issue right under the surface of American culture. Uh, we're, we're trying to work this through. I, I frankly believe in the final analysis that those who think that this does more harm than good are going to prevail. But there are many, many parents that are deeply worried about the state stepping in on this issue with their own children. So I no, think uh, on the let me can I finish, please. That so mm-hmm. as, a, as a matter of, um, you know, Trump's candidacy and where he is positioned to at least not lose much, I think he's not going to push the, the abortion issue as many Republicans would. And that would be a losing issue. I completely agree on that. But I think on the transgender thing and the men and women's sports, I think that's that's a losing issue. Last thing, um, uh, Kylie's talking about how how uh, the Democrats are going to show Americans that they must be afraid. Great message. A lot of Americans are fed up with being afraid. Kylie yeah, Spencer. I mean, I, 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true that there is fear does not always work. I think we're in a very, very different situation right now. And I think Americans know that. I think that the dangers that Trump presents to our freedoms and our democracy are so intense and so real that Americans will respond that way. This election is not going to be about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is going to stay behind the scenes, very quiet. This election is going to be about Donald Trump. Joe Biden and Joe Biden's team have said openly that they are going to let Donald Trump speak and speak a lot, and they are going to highlight what he says. Whether or not Donald Trump wants to make abortion a big issue here, it is a big issue here. He's already on the record, and this will be used much in ads, saying that women who get abortions ought to be uh, penalized and punished. And the transgender issue is an issue that the right, radical right Republican Party loves to bring up to pretend that Americans are obsessed with this and that moms and dads care deeply about this. We are a people, a moderate people. People understand that the issues around transgender are complicated, they're specific, and that they are for parents to decide. And the, uh, the, the country is not obsessed with transgender people. What they are increasingly disgusted by is the obsession the right wing has with people's sexuality, what they do in their bedrooms, and this taunting and bullying of children who are struggling. Uh, Douglas, hey, let me ask you, uh, because from the, the, it's been fascinating yeah. listening to this conversation uh, from this side of the Atlantic, because people here, what mm -hmm. they're a little incredulous about is that on January 6, 2021, there was what looks a lot like an attempted coup in the United States, a, a bid to stop mm -hmm. the certification uh, of an election. Uh, why hasn't that come up more in conversation? I mean, uh, I well, think certainly, the biggest problem uh, with that Douglas, hey. the biggest problem with that Douglas, is that there Douglas, is a storyline. There's a storyline. Sorry, that that well, just happen. a second, Kylie. We want to ask Douglas first. Okay. I, well, I, I think the interruptions sort of demonstrate the larger point. Look, Joe Biden and Democrats talk about this a lot, uh, but the reality is, and we should never lose sight of this: the conversation that happens in Washington D.C. And I'm a 10-minute walk from the United States Capitol, and was on. Uh, January 6th. So it was a personal day for me. But the conversation that happens in Washington and that happens on the island of Manhattan is not the same conversation that happens in pick your state outside of those two areas. So people what outside people talk of, about outside in Paris of what you're saying is, is not people what they outside talk about. Of, they don't care about what happened on January 6th? Their focuses tend to be on different things. Their conversations are on different things. And if we don't spend time talking to those voters, and understanding those voters and what their perspectives are, we just assume that everybody agrees with us and we wish cast that what's going to happen is precisely what we want to happen. The French elections told us this. What people think in Paris, you know, in, in, in the right bank and the left bank is not necessarily what they think when you go to Burgundy or you go to Alsace. People think differently out of the major metropolitan centers. That's just a reality that I think quite often we lose sight of in Washington, D.C. and in New York. Kervan Gorgistani, is January 6th consigned to history or is it going to be a major, the major I think the, mood the, music? I, I think the Democrats are definitely going to try to use it. And who better to run against if you want to talk about democracy than the man who they see as the uh, instigator of what happened on January 6th? That is true. It's also true uh, what Doug said. And when I was uh, out on the field and traveling in the U.S., uh, that's exactly what you hear, which is that January 6th, even for those who care, is not necessarily at the top of their list of reasons why they vote. That said, it's also because it's 
Donald Trump, because we saw in 2022 that a lot of the candidates who were election deniers didn't do well. So it works, it seems, when it's Donald Trump who does it, sapas, as we said, is say here. But when it's somebody else who does it, it doesn't work as well. So there is a, a sort of Yes, maybe some people are uneasy, but with Donald Trump, they're willing to put it aside. And since it's not their top priority, whether their top priority is the economy, is immigration, uh, is abortion on the on the left or other issues, it might not be as high. And that's why it's not going to resonate as much. I do think that when we talk about, even though they're not fully the ones who are going to decide this, I think that within the independents and the moderates, it could uh, resonate a little bit more and the more educated, more urban uh, voters might react more to that messaging than uh, more rural voters. But we know that both of those electorates are important. So the, the key is how much do you uh, spend time focusing on January 6th? Who are the ones that you're trying to convince with that messaging? And how do you try to convince other people with different messaging, whether it's the economy or immigration? So who uh, is the one purveying the message uh, matters? Joshua Mitchell, uh, presidential elections to a degree are a popularity contest. Uh, is the fact that it's Donald Trump against uh, Joe Biden mean what, what does that mean specifically in in this context and and is there as we've been wondering here in in europe uh, uh, uh perhaps a problem for u.s democracy well uh trump is a charismatic figure and that cuts both ways I and mean, we know from the early 20th century that charismatic figures can also turn into tyrants this is a it's a big problem and a democracy doesn't want to have charismatic leaders, but stepping back and in a way referring to the your January 6th comments a minute ago, look, January 6th is a legal matter in one sense, but it, is, it also raises the question of in what do Americans trust? And what we have to understand is that Americans are ripped in two over the question, who or what institutions should we trust? The Trump voters, uh, not all of them crazies, uh, the Trump voters, many of them believe that there has been a systemic, systematic effort uh, on the part of the institutions in Washington to go after him. And when that happens, they wonder why that would be the case. Since the Russia collusion story all the way up to January 6th and through to Mar Largo and, and on and on and on, a lot of Americans are wondering why it is there is so much at stake in destroying this man. And it's not that they love him. But when Trump says there's a deep state, and then from the vantage point of, of everyday citizens who see the DOJ going after him, uh, it looks very much like these institutions that Donald Trump is being critical of, highly critical of, might be right. This is the problem. In what do we trust? And Americans can't decide anymore. Uh, Kylie Spencer? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, a fabulous point. Um, I, I also think that uh, the press, I, I have to say that I'm very critical of the press. Uh, the, this idea of what happened on January 6th, whether Trump actually instigated it, was it an insurrection, was it violent, who was responsible for it? I mean, we have this on, we have footage of this. We know what happened. We know it was insurrection. We know Trump instigated it. It's not a question. And I, 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 I really, I really have issues with this sort of two sidesism. Did it happen? Didn't it happen? It happened. It happened. It was dangerous. It was anti-democratic. It was very threatening to our democracy. Um, I also want to just add that 
I, I do agree with what the other commentator said about what's going to happen on this election and whether people care about January 6th. They care about what's happening in their own communities. They care about whether or not people are banning books. They care about whether or not their health care is going to be criminalized. So I 100 percent. When the when people go to the polls, a lot of what they're going to be asking is 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 what's my life going to be like under this person? Is it going to be threatening? Are my uh, freedoms going to be taken away? And I think that's the message that Democrats are going to continually send that a, a vote for Trump is going to be a vote to take away your your rights on a very very granular, very local level. Douglas Hay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say two things on that. One is that also means that they're going to focus on what do the next four years mean for me and my family with the economy. And what we see is, yes, inflation, um, inflation has fallen, but prices haven't. Yes, um, our, job, our jobs reports are at really good numbers, but voters aren't feeling that. And voters don't feel that, and Joe Biden doesn't get credit. Joe Biden has a very existential problem for his re-election campaign. The other, no one's brought this up, and this is true about Donald Trump, and this is true about Joe Biden. Nikki Haley emphasizes this in her ads. We, we have two men who are both elderly, both of whom I would say politely aren't really at the top of their game, however you want to define that right now. And they are in a very pressure cooker environment where if anything happens age-related to either one of them, the campaign could be over that next day. That's true of Donald Trump. That's true of Joe Biden. Kedavon mm. Gorgistani. Yeah, I think that's a a real uh, issue in uh, this campaign. And as uh, Doug said, it works both ways, because uh, if you think about uh, going back to the top of uh, the show, uh, talking about why is Nikki Haley sort of hanging on, one of the theories is that she's sort of staying there as a possible plan B if something were to happen, whether it's physical or whether it's something that has to do with Donald Trump's legal trouble, that if somehow there was a sort of earthquake uh, that took uh, Donald Trump out of the race, she would be basically the only uh, last woman left standing. For Joe Biden, uh, it also is an issue because in his case, if he is reelected or if something happens to him before the election, who's the next in line? It's Kamala Harris. And Kamala Harris is not exactly uh, the most popular uh, vice president uh, among some of the key uh, demo- uh, Democratic uh, voters. That said, she is slowly, uh, and the Biden campaign has understood this, she is slowly working her way back. And I think having followed her uh, often, the one issue on which she seems to light up the crowd, to get really an energized crowd, to feel that she is very comfortable with what she's doing, that she believes in it, and where she sort of becomes this uh, person that we don't see often is on the abortion issues. And that's why you're seeing the Biden campaign putting her on this topic over and over again, because that is where she resonates the most. But that said, the the question of who would replace either uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden if something were to happen is really something that you don't usually think about that much in a U.S. election. And this time around, it's really clear on both sides that this is uh, something to think about when you choose who you're voting for. So Joshua Mitchell, um, the um, January 6th is not necessarily uh, a, a deciding factor uh, on voters' minds. How about when uh, the Republican frontrunner talks about uh, the poisoning of American blood in in reference to uh, immigrants and and to foreigners? Uh, Does that matter? 
Look, the immigration issue is a huge one. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and defend Donald Trump's rhetoric, but the immigration issue is a huge one. If I may, please bear with me. Let me step back and talk about why we have two old men and what the real problem is. Both parties have a succession crisis. The Republican Party has, has a succession crisis because for, for 10 to 30 years, they doubled down on foreign wars abroad and pure Reaganomics, which exported, uh, exported jobs overseas and helped to destroy the middle class. We are now in the, in the Republican Party uh, rebuilding. It's not clear where it's going to go. Trump will have some hand, but, but that's the reason why he's there. With respect to the Democrats, there is also a succession crisis. In 2010, in the international election years of the Obama administration, the last of the blue dog moderate Democrats was basically pushed out. And so what's happened right now in the Democratic Party is you have, it's really the Obama Party still, and with all due respect to Kylie, this is not a progressive party anymore. This is the identity politics party. Uh, and, and, with, and here I will say something very kind about Biden, Schumer, and Pelosi. They were the last of the moderate progressive Democrats. Pelosi did not like AOC and identity politics, but they are, they are at the end now, and it's not clear to me what happens next. Uh, so this, they're both, the reason why we have these two old guys is that both parties need to completely reinvent themselves. They're on the cusp but hasn't, of doing hasn't that. hasn't Donald no Trump already reinvented the Republican Party? Remember a few years back, it was about small government. It was about the Tea Party. Uh, uh, now it's, uh, it's gone nativist. It's a very different party than it was a decade ago. Uh, it's just not clear to me. I mean, look, I'm inside the Beltway. I'm talking with all the people in the think tanks. The, the way you're describing uh, Trump and his ideas and those who support him is, in, in my view, a, you're talking about a very small margin of people, which is the position that journalists around the world need to have in, in order to, to continue to lambast him so that he doesn't get elected. Look, I don't know how I'm going to vote for, but it's very, very troubling that you hear the language of extremism, uh, all, all this language which is designed to make him a scapegoat. This is not what politics is about. Politics is about... Uh, ideas and about making proposals for how the nation goes forward. And all the left can do is scream, danger, 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 Dr. Smith, like the lost in space robot. And it strikes me that there's no forward plan here aside from stir up fear. And again, we, Americans are hungry for an actual constructive option. And no, open borders is not the way to do it. So stor the storming of the Capitol, the conflicts of interest with foreign I, leaders, I do that not. doesn't stir up fears? This yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not making the case here. I'm asking you the question. <laughs> I am not saying anything about what happened on January 6th. I am not. If, what we need to establish, Kylie, with all due respect, there is a charge of insurrection. When, when the verdict comes in that it was an insurrection, then the secretaries of state of Colorado and Maine can take them off the ballot. But until that happens, you can't just run around saying, oh, yes, he's guilty. We have this thing called the rule of law. Kylie yeah, Spencer. Well, I wish that I wish that Trump had cared about the rule of law on January 6th. I also want to say that anybody who thinks that Trump is not radical, extremist and dangerous, I would hate to know what candidate you think is extremist. Um, also, this idea that, uh, that that the Democratic Party has been taken over by wokeism is a storyline that the Republicans need to tell. No, the idea not. that the Republican Party, yes, the idea Kylie, that the with Republican. All due respect, I teach at Georgetown. I've watched this happen for thirty years, and I went to the University of Chicago, where Obama was. This has been developing for thirty years. Please don't tell me I'm wrong. I've seen it. it, it 
I, I absolutely believe that there is a faction of a very progressive faction of the Democratic Party that is interested in identity politics. I do not think that what happened to Georgetown at Harvard at, at uh, Oberlin at Middlebury, small colleges, elite colleges, has anything to do with what happens at the vast majority of higher ed institutions in the United States. That is not accurate, and it's a storyline. No, I've been in for 35 years. I I know what's happened throughout all the disciplines. You're not going to argue this with me. Yeah, I am going to argue it. I just... uh, I agree that there is a sense of identity politics in the Democratic uh, Party, that there is a a sort of uh, using fear of what could happen if Donald Trump returns. That is absolutely true. But you can't say that there is no identity politics on the Republican side when they uh, you have Donald Trump talking about what you said, the poisoning, the blood of the country, when you uh, talk about immigration in only in terms of negative and of they're going to invade us, they're going to take over the country. That is identity politics. That is fear mongering. That is true of the Republican Party as well as the Democratic Party. And we have, I think, arrived to a a situation in U.S. politics and in a lot of countries around the world where fear and identity politics work on both sides. You see uh, both parties Mm -hmm. using that in a way. It's different types of fear. It's the fear of the other on the Republican side. It's the fear or identity politics of uh, we, uh, the uh, religious, uh, you know, traditional uh, education, all this talk about, uh, you know, transgender, all of that, that's also a way to raise fear within the Republican Party. So they are both, in this case, there is both sidism. Both sides are guilty of using fear and of using identity politics. Douglas Hay, I'm not going to ask you what's going to happen, the result's going to be in November, but more the question of what's going to happen between now and then, because if the Republican nomination is wrapped up at this uh, this early date, uh, the earliest in 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 uh, recent memory, uh, at that point in time, what happens? Do strategists like yourself hibernate for a few months? Does the campaign wait until the fall to get uh, heated? Uh, how does it change the conversation? Well, it's sort of all over the map. And part of that is we'll still continue to go through the primary process. So Donald Trump could win the political side of things, but he still has to win the mathematical side of things, picking up delegates in state after state, uh, which presumably he would run the table on. Um, Clearly, the Biden campaign is focusing on Donald Trump um, as, as a whole right now. They're viewing this as a very general election. We may have a bit of a lull, but what we also know, and somebody said earlier that you know, Joe Biden's sort of behind the scenes. Well, there's a reason that Joe, Bi- Joe Biden's behind the scenes. He can't campaign, campaign as he used to be able to. He's just too old. Donald Trump, same thing. He didn't do many events in Iowa or New Hampshire for that same reason. And so we're going to have a campaign that's going to be fought on television. It's going to be fought in, in digital um, and in mailboxes. We're not going to see barnstorming throughout the country because you have two candidates who just physically um, are not up are, are not up to this. I'll give a good French um, comparison. I saw the news today. Sadly, Sylvie Vartan has said that she's going to retire from performing. She's a legend. She's fantastic, but she's not running for president. So having somebody sing at Au Dome de Paris, fantastic, even if it's her last go around for Donald Trump and for Joe Biden, 
they're too old to have the most important job in the world. And that's what makes it very hard for voters uh, to determine what they want to do. They don't like either of these candidates, and they sort of see that it's the movable object running against the resistible force. That's not a strong place for either campaign to be. Well, Douglas Hay, I can tell you that on the other side of the glass, they're very impressed that you managed to uh, uh, link uh, Sylvie Vartan's retirement Sylvie. To, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to this conversation. I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, from Washington. I want to thank as well uh, Joshua Mitchell, uh, Kylie Spencer in New York City, and Kedavon Gorgestani. Thank you for being with us here in the France 24 debate. Yeah.